This week's episode is brought to you by Hollow World by Nick Pogorski. Mainly because they asked me for a quote for the back of the book. Pick up your copy today to see what my quote about the book said. And welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I am George. And I'm Jeff. And this weekend, I saw World of Color Winter Dreams, the new uh, new version of the World of Color show. And it dawned on me, hey, we've never done a history segment on the World of Color show before. And I like the World of Color show. Yeah, so we, we should do a history. It's been around too long. Well, it's been around, so. you know, a handful of years at this point. <laughs> <laughs> not that long altogether but sometimes it comes to the day and i'm like oh no i didn't write a history for tonight i, I need to write something but this one a little a little bit of panic a little panic it's funny because we had an event yesterday and a cadet came up to me and said hey what are you guys going to talk about on the show this week and i said that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> what would you like us to talk about <laughs> so your suggestions are being heard, usually, because when someone usually asks when we're going to talk about something, generally we'll talk about it very soon, otherwise I'll forget that you, that suggestion was made. So if you ever want to hear something on the show, you want to hear us talk about it, let me know, and then we'll yeah, talk about it. Yeah, send us an email or call the GOAT line. Yes, or the GOAT line. But yeah, the yes. World of Color one was a good one, and I enjoy the show. And I know you haven't seen it yet, George, but you should check it out next time you're here. It's time for Disney History! All right, so for, for those of you who haven't seen it before, The World of Color is a, it's the nighttime spectacular at Disney California Adventure, and it's an incredible feat of Imagineering. And it really does burst with imagination and technology of the 21st century, and it really, it kind of draws on the decades-old Disney tradition of creative storytelling. Now, the show is infused with Walt Disney's special gift for conjuring tales of magic, excitement, and heart, and it has the ingen ingenuity of today's Imagineers as well. So, initial planning for World of Color began in July 2005, and even well before the ambitious and sorely needed expansion plan was announced for California Adventure, the Disneyland Resort leadership wanted to add a, a one-of-a-kind new attraction to the park. It was a five-year process from planning to launch, and a variety of concepts, rides, as well as shows were considered for the Paradise Bay Lagoon during the initial brainstorming. Now, World of Color was conceived by uh, Vice President of Parades and Spectaculars, Steve Davison, and it was this kind of a, a living fantasia using music and animation and color and light and water to involve the audience in an experience that they've never really experienced before. Now, the creative team, which was led by Walt Disney Imagineer and Creative Entertainment, they believed it was important to execute a show on a truly massive scale. And after looking at existing fountain and water shows, including the Dancing Waters show that was previously at the Disneyland Hotel, which many guests loved, including Keith Gluck, uh, who? the team... Who? Exactly. Who? <laughs> who? I'm just kidding, Keith. We know, we know who you are. After looking at all those shows, not a Keith Clock, but looking at the shows, the team decided that they had quite the challenge ahead of them. Yeah, so for example, while creating the show, they were told they couldn't have fountains with multiple heads or moving heads. 
well, so they created them. They were also told that they couldn't create color and light in fountains. So they found ways. Uh, they were also told that they couldn't project images on water if it was not a water screen. <laughs> but they did it anyway. They, they went beyond creating a movie screen on water, much like Fantasmic does, by developing a show in which water, light, and color become the characters. Uh, it's on a screen so versatile that it might be 100 feet, 200 feet, or 380 feet wide at any given time. And they kind of took on Walt Disney saying of, it's kind of fun to do the impossible uh, during the entire creation process. Now, the, the quote-unquote stage for World of Color is a platform that's composed of nearly one full acre of engineered superstructure, and it's longer than a football field, and it's capable of settling on three levels. There's one for the actual performance, there's one when it's under the water during the day when you can't see it, and then there's the third one that they use for maintenance. Now, the show itself features nearly um, 1,200 powerful and programmable fountains and a vast underwater grid with more than 18,000 points of control. And each fountain has a multiple points of control for the lighting, uh, the color intensity, how high and how high the water goes when they're you know shooting up in the air. The fountains in the World of Color show, they can send the water to heights ranging from 30 feet to 200 feet. And for a comparison, the Mickey's Fun Wheel, which is uh, a backdrop for the show, that reaches a height of 150 feet. So the water could shoot up higher than the, the Fun Wheel, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. That is, that is. Um, other water features include a 380-foot-long mist screen uh, to project images onto using the 28 high-definition projectors, 14 of which are submersible. Hey, there are fire nozzles and fire whips that are capable of shooting flames up to 50 feet in the air. Uh, projection domes emerge from the water on top of telescopic mass and feature lighting effects and video projected onto the inside surface of the domes. Uh, Mickey's Fun Wheel has its lights synchronized throughout the show, as does California Screamin'. And they also installed a 65-foot-tall telescopic mast in the lagoon to create the Chernobog of Fantasia, but the tower has not been used since May of 2010. Now, there are a couple of special animation sequences that were created specifically for the show using paper animation by artist Megan Brain. Mark Hammond and Dave Hamilton, they actually arranged the music, which was recorded at Abbey Road, Abbey Road Studios in London, England by the, uh, the London Symphony Orchestra and the Nashville Choir. And there was also a, a, a choreography that was created for it by Australian choreographer uh, Joshua Horner. And he just like did this unique interpretation of the music, which served as another source of inspiration for the movement of the water fountains during the sequences. Now, the entire viewing area is known as uh, Paradise Park, and it's situated along the northern shore of Paradise Bay, and it can hold up to 4,000 spectators at full capacity. And it's, you know, it's kind of multi-tiered, similar to the viewing area for Fantasmic at Disneyland um, in, in California. Um, but you have to stand in order to actually see the show. You can't sit down, otherwise you'll be looking at people's legs. Um, there, there are a bunch of hidden fountains and fire beds located within the flower beds in the viewing area. So, and they're, they're incorporated into the show, especially during the, uh, the stampede sequence of the Lion King and the finale as well. Now, the man-made Paradise Bay Lagoon, where the show takes place, is three and a half acres, and it's filled with more than 16 million gallons of water. When preparations for World of Color began, the Disneyland Resort collaborated with the Orange County Water District to conserve the water in Paradise Bay. Instead of draining the lagoon to the ocean, the water was sent through the Water District's state-of-the-art groundwater replenishment system. After being purified, uh, the water was then stored in the county's underground water basin, which added to the overall water reserves. Uh, when the time was right, 
the purified water was used to refill Paradise Bay. For these efforts, along with other resort-wide environmental practices, Disneyland Resort was recognized with California's highest and most prestigious environmental honor, the 2009 Governor's Environmental and Economic Leadership Award. The original show, the one that opened a couple of years ago, it was actually inspired by the Emmy Award-winning Wonderful World of Color, which was Walt Disney's first color television series, and it was kind of an extension of his Disneyland and Walt Disney Presents uh, anthology series. Um, the music and the kaleidoscopic images of the show, were can, they, you can really see them in, in the World of Color show at California Adventure. Um, for the 2013 hol holiday season, World of Color received a massive uh, overhaul in the form of World of Color Winter Dreams, and it features a, a new story, new characters uh, from the, the new movie Frozen, and uh, a bunch of new uh, advanced technology has been built into the show. And uh, it, it, it's incredible. I saw it over the weekend, and it was just fantastic. It was better than the original, in my opinion. But... Since the, mm -hmm. the premiere of the original show on uh, June 11, 2010, World of Color has been performed more than uh, 2,100 times and has been viewed by more than 8 million guests at California Adventure. That's a lot of people who see this show. And it uh, is. if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out the time uh, and, and, and you know checking it out, especially this new winter yeah, I do, one. Yeah, I do like the fact that they can change up the scene, uh, the show periodically. Yeah, they keeps it's, it fresh and brings in new properties, which... Would be nice at the Fantasmic show in Florida. If they That's could do thing. something like that. I agree. Um, I mean, w with the technology the way it is, it's very easy for them to swap stuff in and out. And, you know, they, they can do that for Fantasmic as well. Um, they don't, but it'd be really cool <laughs> if they did. But uh, Maybe yeah. a Communicore weekly segment right in the middle instead of Pocahontas? I, w I would jump around the mountain at uh, Walt Disney World for yeah, the Communicore yeah. weekly segment. No, no big deal. We could do that. We could do that. Okay. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Before the Animation Begins by John Kanemaker is a 1996 release. Now, you know, a lot of the books that I cherish and review are theme park related. And if you look at my collection of books, easily less than a third are about the parks themselves. The rest are really focused on animation, the company, and the artists. And I don't really cover enough, I think, of the other things, but I know we're all theme park junkies anyway. So, well, when I read about Disney animators, one of my favorite authors is John Kanemaker, and he's an animation historian, animator himself, and professor of film animation at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. He is a very successful author with seven books, uh, three just about Disney animation, and hundreds of essay articles to his name. Uh, Kanemaker is also noted for several award-winning short films. And there are actually very few people that know as much about Disney animation as Kanemaker, so I was very excited to start this book. The, the subtitle of the book is The Art and Lives of Disney Inspirational Sketch Artists. Basically, the book is a look at the artists that set the tone and helped the, to develop the original concepts and characters of the animated films. The book is broken down into five sections covering the different ages of animation. The artists that Kanemaker writes about are incredibly impressive, and there might be a few of you that aren't familiar. There were a few I hadn't heard of before. Uh, Albert Herder, Ferdinand Horvath, and Gustav Tangren are in the early inspiration section, and they handled Pinocchio, Snow White, and Fantasia, as well as a lot of the Silly Symphony shorts. It's really quite impressive to think that these artists alone really shaped the look of the company and what it would take over the next 90 years. 
the Golden Age is covered with James Bodrero, Kay Nielsen, and a lot of the artists that were able to focus on Fantasia specifically. Uh, Kane Maker does have a section called Inspired Women, which covers Bianca Majoli, Sylvia Mobley Holland, and Mary Blair, who we're all very familiar with. These were all women that were hired when most women at the, women at the company only saw jobs as inkers and painters. It, it was eye-opening to see their concept artwork for Pantasia, Peter Pan, Cinderella, and so many more films that they worked on. Part four is Inspiring Eclecticism. It includes Tyrus Wong, who worked on Bambi, David Hall, who did Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, Evan Earl, who did Sleeping Beauty, of course, and Ken Anderson, who not only did The Jungle Book, The Sword in the Stone, Snow White, but he also did a lot of the early designs for most of the Disneyland attractions. And, and the final section of the book looks at the more modern artists that worked on Lion King, Pocahontas, and Hercules. And it, but the book, before the animation begins, really is a fantastic resource for animation fans. There's such, an, um, there's such amazing concept artwork that spans the entire history of the company. You know, and to me, it was really hard to pick out a favorite artist or a piece of artwork in the book. Kane Maker is an animation expert and does a great job of researching and distilling these artists' lives and careers into a text that's very easy to digest and honestly will have you clamoring for more. Uh, I'm glad that Kane Maker was able to present this information because much of it would be lost to the ages if he hadn't been dogged enough to track it down and put it together. And any fan of animation is going to love this book. It is Before the Animation Begins by John Kane Maker. What we liked, what we didn't like, he's in the booze! 60 Second Review! So this week we are looking at one of Disney's latest releases on Blu-ray. And, uh, gee, I hope the irritation is already seeping through my voice. <laughs> <laughs> you sound just, pain saying it all just, right off the bat. Yeah, a little bit. So this week it is a combo disc with Little Mermaid, Ariel's Beginning, and Little Mermaid 2, Return to the Sea, which are officially part of the Little Mermaid trilogy. And, yeah. Not much else to say about that. <laughs> you sound super, super excited. All right, so let's start with um, Little Mermaid 2, I guess, Return to the Sea. Yeah, because that um, one was released before Ariel's yes. Beginning. Yes, because it always makes sense to re release the sequel first and then the prequel. Of course, of course. So it's, you know... If you don't know the story, it's basically a reverse of the original film. So it's Ariel's daughter, Melody, who goes to the sea and gets turned into a mermaid by Ursula's crazy sister, who, if <laughs> Ursula's not crazy on her own, God only knows what her sister's like. Um, but her sister turns her into a mermaid, and it's a it's definitely a movie. It is a movie. There are characters in it. There are a few songs. There's some animation in it. It's kind of rough. Um, it was just like they said, well, what else can we say? You know, she got married to Prince Eric and they had a child and let's show off our really bad parenting skills instead of explaining. That bothered to, me a lot, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Instead of explaining to Melody, hey, you're drawn to the sea because your mom used to be a mermaid, but gave it up for love and we'll let you stay with your grandfather for a little while, who's the king of the sea. But no, we're going to build a wall and you won't even know that your grandfather is the king of the sea. You know, it's, it's weird because on, on paper, the concept to me seems like a good idea. 
Yeah, but yeah. it just doesn't execute well. And I guess the only upside is that Jodie Benson kind of re she returns as the voice of Ariel, even though Ariel is a very minor character in this. It's more about yeah. uh, Melody, the daughter. Well, and um, Pat Carroll was still Morgana or Morgana. Morgana, whatever her name is. See, yeah. that's how much we enjoyed the film. We don't remember how to say her name. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'll give some extra points for the transfer because it wasn't horrific, but it's still not no. the best. Um, it, it looked more like um, the direct-to-video sequels we were used to in the late 90s, early 2000s, like the second Pocahontas movie. Yeah. Just, it it yeah. looked worse than the Saturday afternoon cartoon show. Yes. I mean, the, the, the afternoon cartoon show that they did with so, Lumber Maid. So, so not, not a fan so much, but, you know, no. mo moving on to the next one was yes. the prequel, which came out after the sequel, and that is Ariel's Beginning. And <laughs> I... I like wish... this film better than The Little Mermaid 2. See, did you? I li I didn't like them both equally, to be completely well, honest with you. Yeah, I, I did like it better. I felt the animation was better, but not enough that it, I could recommend it. Yeah. You know, the songs were there, but you could tell the songs were missing something. And the they were missing actors. good songs. Is what yeah, they were missing good songs. That's yes. what it was. There so was definitely the music. It wasn't good. Yeah, there, there was music. There was music. You know, the plot of this one is we learn about Ariel's beginnings. and As the, the title would imply. Exactly. And the loss of her mother and how her father, you know, King Triton, deals with it. And the fact that music is banned throughout the Undersea Kingdom and they have to, you know, find a way of bringing music back to the Underwater Kingdom to it's, make everybody happy. It's basically Footloose, but set under the sea with mermaids. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it, it is Footloose because it's nobody's got feet. Exactly. They've got exactly. flippers, they've got fins, so Finloose, maybe? Finloose? Sure, why not? Gotta, gotta get Finloose. E no, either okay. way, I mean, that song, I would much rather listen to that than any of the songs <laughs> from this film. But yeah, the, only, the only part I liked about it was seeing all the the mermaids, the mermaid princesses when they were little, because they all looked like Lilo. They, oh, that's a good point. They did they all look cute. like Lilo. Go for it. But that then, was, and then was, it all went downhill after that. It um, did. It did. So, so it, it, we get to the end of this, and, and I think both of us agree that there's no reason to buy this disc unless you are an incredibly, uh, you know, unless you're a diehard Little Mermaid fan, period, and you want to have it as part of your collection. But if you are that diehard of a fan, you probably already own them on DVD. And yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they have a few new extras on the disc that pertain to both films, and there's a, a story read by Jody Benson, there's deleted mm -hmm. songs, some deleted scenes, but really nothing that's worth picking up the, the the disc at this price to be honest with you i i would say pass yeah i would say pass and, and i would do a call out to disney to please release some of the films that have not seen the light of day in a long time some of the classic animated films please you mean are you referring to song of the south <laughs> it's okay you don't have to answer that george i'll just say that you're referring to song of the south Okay, we'll just say that. We'll just okay. say that. Oh, and but with the timer, I think we're all out of time. All right. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> so early plans for Disney California Adventures Nighttime Spectacular World of Color, which we just talked about, it called for a small orange fountain in it, nicknamed the Little Squirts, and it was kind of meant to embody uh, Walt Disney's artistic and mischievous uh, spirit throughout the show. Now, that idea didn't really make it off the drawing board, um, but a remnant of it can actually be found in the show today. 
So at the end of the after show, which is the post show that plays after the main World of Color show, the show within a sh- uh, it's confusing. But at the Whoa. end of the, the after show, <laughs> when all the other fountains turn off, for a while, there's a little orange fountain that remains on for a couple of seconds, and it kind of bows to the audience, and then it disappears. And this is meant to be Walt saying goodbye and thank you for watching the show. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a nice little little touch. Um, and I, I got to give a hat tip to uh, a cast member that told me that, and I had to look it up to verify. But uh, it's it, that's a cool little little thing they added there. Yeah, I did get a little bit lost when you said the after show, after the post show, after the main show. So it happens like two days later? Uh, yeah, in the future. Only people in the future can see it. Oh, gotcha. Because if you're there now and you're waiting for it, you're not going to see it. It's because it's after oh, the show, after so the post show. Wibbly wobbly. Tommy Wimey? Yeah. Something like it. that. Yeah, well, obviously, though, we have reached the end of the show. We have reached the end of the show. No matter now. where you are in time, you're this at is the end, end of the show. Yes. This is the end. So. Thank you guys so much for watching and listening to us. Yes, be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes. Even if you're from the future, still rate us. That's important. Very important. Um, Always email us anything at communicorweekly at gmail.com, including your ideas for stories or for future Disney history segments. Yes, yes, please do. I appreciate it. Future Disney history segments? Yes, because in the future, we will do them. That's true, that's you true. See. Stuff we don't even know has happened yet. Yes, yes. Well, the future uh, us does, but we we don't? No, okay, anyway. So just like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. Yeah, yeah, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. They are both the same logins for us, at Imaginerding and at Jeff Heimbuck. And definitely give us a call on the Communicor Weekly hotline at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. That's right, the GOAT line. Give us a call. It should be called Clever GOAT. The Clever GOAT. That's too many many letters and numbers. We can't can't fit that. Sorry. There are GOAT, C-L-V-R, but then people might think it's a GOAT cleaver. Yeah, we don't want to hurt goats. No goats for harm. No, no, we don't want to do that. So (sighs) Anyway, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heinbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Happy birthday, Beth.